I don't know exactly what it is, but it's 1996, and the world is changing rapidly with the use of computers, and everything was becoming high-tech versus high-touch. And I felt, felt it was time, still people wanted that connection, and that doing something for children, I had a really big idea that was complicated because of children's privacy, but I, lo I love this idea of a child walking into a store and the door would know because of the, the little badge the child had that said, hi Mary, how are you? Welcome back. Did you finish that book that we, you bought here? You know, things like that, that kids would feel welcome. Because you know, it's when you go to a store and they say hi to you, or you, it's your birthday and they give you a special gift, you know, you feel special. And we've kind of forgotten some of those things, even more so lately than, I mean, post-COVID than pre-COVID. The light bulb, I had a light bulb, Willy Wonka moment in my head, which I had for every other idea I had prior and had for the same thing here. I can see it really clearly in my head and then it's easier to write that business plan to make that vision come through. And vision, it's a real vision. I mean, I can go and sketch it, not perfectly, but I can kind of give you an idea of what it looked like. And the kids went down to pull out all the craft supplies because that's what they thought we were gonna do. And I went upstairs and was netscaping because it was very slow and looking for a business I could buy because I didn't think you had to invent it. So Katie said, why don't we do it? And I thought, why not? No, why not? You know, like there was no reason not to really. And we went about doing it. And nine months later, we opened our first store at the St. Louis Galleria. This is Country Club Conversations. I'm Raj Tut, founder and CEO of Storyboard Living. This show gives you actionable insights from the hard to reach top percentile in business and entrepreneurship. I think everyone deserves this type of access and I'm bringing it to you. Welcome to the club. Maxine, thank you for taking the time. I do appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Glad to meet you. You're one of the true innovators of the retail industry, uh, founder, former CEO of Build-A-Bear, Build-A-Bear Workshop, a company that you grew from one location to currently just under 500, um, doing close to 500 million in revenue as well. Uh, you're also the developer of this wonderful building that we're sitting in, the Del Mar Divine, which we will get into. Uh, you left Build the Bear in 2013 to kind of pursue passion projects is maybe how I would put it. Uh, would love to hear from you how, how you would put some of the projects you're working on or have worked on since Build a Bear. And uh, you're originally from Miami, Florida, but I take it that you are a proud St. Louis resident today. Yes, I am proud St. Louis resident. But I'm also proud to be from Miami, Florida, which is a culturally diverse, uh, incredible city. You know, growing up uh, there during the incredible and large, you know, immigration of people from Cuba mostly, but also Latin America, Haiti, the islands in between. And it was wonderful to be able to grow around so many people that came with unique stories. I think the way I've heard you put it is you grew up in what felt like a village or, or a really tight-knit community. Uh, with you being a first-generation American, can you kind of give us some background on what life was like for you growing up? My parents were first-generation, okay. but I'm the first generation to go to college. So it was a wonderful, uh, you know, right after the war in the 50s and 60s, when little towns were emerging here in St. Louis and in Miami, Florida, thanks to the GI Bill and investment in, in communities, people were able to build small houses for their families with whatever the modern conveniences were at the time and uh, start their family. And schools were popping up everywhere. You went to your neighborhood school. You The school bus came and stopped right in front of your house, no matter what street you lived on. And uh, 
even if you came home from school and your parents weren't there, somebody was looking out the window for you, you didn't even have to lock your doors. Uh, that your dog could run freely and, you know, come back home. It certainly when you rang the, the doorbell, they'd hear you and they come running or barking. You know, it was just a different time. It doesn't mean it can't be um, somewhat the same now. It's just so different because kids, especially in St. Louis, don't necessarily go to their neighborhood school. Uh, they may not be, go to school on a bus. They may have a school may not have a bus because they can't afford it. Or it's a private school. St. Louis has a very large percentage of children in private parochial or homeschooled. So it changes the, the not only the democracy of education, making it affordable for everyone to go to a high-quality school, it changes the relationships that you might have with kids in your neighborhood because you go to school maybe 10 miles away, and, and that's your friends. That's a great point. And um, I'm sure the way you grew up was in some way an inspiration for the Del Mar Divine development because you mentioned in a previous interview that uh, you grew up in a place that had uh, mixed incomes and like you said now, a lot of diversity. And I, I think that's what you're trying to do here. I could be wrong. Um, there's another piece that you mentioned as well from your childhood. Uh, it was a story of you losing a beloved teddy bear. Uh, and, and you mentioned that reflecting back on the way you grew up um, and your childhood, that could have been a piece of the inspiration for Build the Bear. Would you mind sharing that story? I thought yeah. it was a phenomenal sh- yeah. a story that really gives us the importance of teddy bears. Yeah, my teddy bear was my best friend next to my puppy dog, Tar, who was a black cocker spaniel. Uh, we would uh, come home. I love to read. And my teddy bear got to hear all my books because I would read out loud to him. And my te- my dog and my teddy bear heard all my secrets. But it, I don't know why. I just it was given to me as a child, and he was with me till I was about ten years old. And we went out. I would, took him everywhere. I mean, I didn't take him to school, but I did take him everywhere that we went as a family. And we were going out to dinner uh, with our next door neighbors. And I took him, and he was in the back of the car, and I left him in the seat of the car. And when I came back to go into the house um, at night after we were we were back in our driveway. Um, he wasn't there. And I thought, well, did I leave him at the restaurant? And I realized that something happened, you know, and I know my dad was trying to get me to stop with my teddy bear because I used to read in bed and suck my thumb and my teddy bear would be right there. So I think he thought if the teddy bear was gone, I would stop doing that and I wouldn't have to have braces when I was, you know, older. And, um, but I missed him, but I think it was time, you know, like, you don't, I look back on it now and it was an important time. Uh, and I was always looking for him wherever I went. Like I looked to see if any child was holding him or anybody else had found him. Um, and no, that was just a story. That was just a part of my life. Um, but all of the things that happen to you in your life are part of your life. One of the things that we did in my elementary school was go on field trips. And we walked to some of them because the bakery was around the corner and not too far away was a factory. And we could walk to those places. So we wondered about them and we got to wander inside of them and wonder and wander close words. And we got to ask questions. And so even though I didn't want to be a baker or I didn't want to work in the other factory, I, I saw how things were made and it kind of just sat with me. I loved, I was always curious about how, how did something get from one place to another? How did somebody make that, especially with something beautiful, whether it was clothing or a painting or um, a three-dimensional object? My mother was a really talented person. She um, had a, a wonderful history, but she was also a really talented seamstress. And we were, all, my sister and I were tiny and my mother was tiny. So she used to make all our clothes. 
And then we always got lots of compliments on our clothes, which usually when your mother made your clothes, it looked like it was homemade. But my mother's clothes did not look like that. And people would always say to me, where did you get that? Where did you get that? I didn't always want to tell them, but I was very proud of my mom. But my mother also was a very unique person and had a big impact on my life. Um, unfortunately, she died when I was just 22 years old. But um, all that time that I was sitting with her at the table at night, my father was a morning person, my mother was a night person, and she would sit there and sew. And we would talk about life. My mother worked for Eleanor Roosevelt. She was her private travel, one of her private traveling secretaries. And so during um, the time that she worked for Eleanor, which was a long time in, in his presidency, they would go places where they would see um, uh, asylums, prisons. Sometimes they were the same thing. Uh, people in, in distress, poor people, because it was that the Depression. Uh, and what Eleanor just wanted them to do was to, to work on solutions. And when Franklin died, she gave everybody a small amount of money and said, go back to your home and fix one of the problems that we saw. And so my mother and three of her friends pooled their money and went to Miami, where my father was stationed, and started a school for children with Down syndrome. But it wasn't called Down syndrome then. It was called mongoloidism. And, of course, part of the problem, the advocacy that you do, in, in whether it's mothers against drunk driving or children that have uh, disabilities, is you find the policies that will work. And one of them was to call it what it is. Uh, so people would understand it. And in those days, children didn't even live past 16. But now they live a full and wonderful life and are mainstreamed into our society. My mother didn't get to see that. But she did create a great school that was um, bringing children out of hiding into a life of potential. And I think that's what we all deserve. So even though I wasn't going to be a social worker, I wanted to be a capitalist. Um, I admired what my mother did, and I respected it. And I, I, um, well, I sometimes had to go with her when I didn't want to because I wanted to be with my friends. But I always would leave there feeling better than I went because the hugs that the kids gave you, sitting down and coloring with them, talking with them, um, it was a, a really wonderful childhood experience. Every child should experience something that isn't them, that is, is someone else, uh, and get to know them. And then in our community, it was so diverse, people coming from uh, Latin America, particularly from Cuba, and meeting new friends all the time. That was also part of my environment. And I, I thought that, you know, the, so when you add all that up together, you know, the te losing my teddy bear, my mother caring about people and teaching us to have those kinds of concerns and respect for everyone, having friends from very diverse backgrounds, um, creating a neighborhood like here at Del Mar Divine, it's all just full circle. And you don't know that when you're growing up. You don't know exactly, but all those things that happen for you and with you, and with your parents and your friends and your neighborhood, and on the news, by the way, impact you. And I'm worried about that. I'm worried about that going forward. You know, what are children hearing? What are they seeing? What do they do? What can they do about it? And do they feel empowered or do they just feel, um, you know, scared? And for me, I felt empowered. It was also during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And I didn't want to die, of course, but I started keeping a diary like Anne Frank did in case something happened to me and somebody would find it. But it's the best tool for me to go back and see who is that little girl? What was she thinking on whatever day we're in now, February 12th, 1965? What was I writing in my diary? And honestly, it's sometimes the same thing. I'm writing a story about a friend of mine in school who I was worried about or somebody I cared about or how much I love my teacher and my school and what I learned that day. And so it's not, you know, you, are, you just grow up. You aren't necessarily uh, a different person. You hopefully are a better person because of all the life experiences that you've had. And I definitely believe that about my life. I wanted to be a Supreme Court justice when women didn't, weren't even uh, in the Supreme Court. 
I didn't, I was, I went to Florida Girl State and I was on the Supreme Court there. So that was my taste of it. But that's the kind of experiences you should have as a child, trying things, seeing things, thinking what, what, what could I be? And I wanted to be all those things. I, I, I didn't want to be um, a teacher, a nurse, a social worker, or a secretary. That was what women traditionally did. No offense to those. We need all those jobs. But I wanted to do something different. And being a lawyer was that, was that road. But I had to go to work to go to law school. And I found a, a different path. Thank you for sharing. That's an incredible story. The care and inclusion that you mentioned, I think that's very evident in the way you built Build-A-Bear and then now your current pursuits like Delmar Divine, for example. So I would say, uh, maybe it's not my place to say, but I would say you're definitely making your mother proud. Uh, and, and then uh, you're welcome. And then also you mentioned curiosity. So Curiosity, I think, is one of the most important traits of an entrepreneur. Um, I think you need to be endlessly curious in order to figure out the various challenges you're going to find. There's no real roadmap for you to follow. So that curiosity, is that what led you from law to business? It sounds like you didn't grow up uh, around entrepreneurship, really. Well, I did, actually. Because my father was an entrepreneur. He was an electrician. He owned his own business. Okay. Although I don't think we thought of the word entrepreneur there. We just thought he was a business owner. That was the word we used. My mother created a school from nothing, so she was an entrepreneur, and it can be a nonprofit entrepreneur, too. But I didn't know what that was. I just thought that was life. Um, but I do believe that my curiosity is my superpower. I've always been a nosy person, wanting to know everything, whether it was peeking inside my next door neighbor's house and listening at the window or, you know, listening in my parents' bedroom. I've always been wanting to know more than what I was supposed to know and um, finding that out. And I think that that is what propelled me from um, where I, w- when I went to law school and had to go to work, I had to get a job. My college professor was a consultant to the retail business. And he said, oh, you should go into retail. That was how I knew. I thought, I know where to buy things, but I didn't know what all the, you know, how, how one thing gets from another. So I went and applied for a job at the Heck Company in Washington, D.C. And I was lucky enough to get into the executive training program. My boss knew I was going to uh, school at, after work. Um, but nobody else really needed to know. And then he got sick and he had he had a heart attack and he was going to be out of work for about, they said six months, but it turned out to be nine months. And his boss asked me if I could fill in. He didn't, he didn't know about the law school part. So I took a leave of absence from law school and I'm still on that leave of absence today. And even though I've gotten two honorary degrees in law from uh, WashU and St. Louis U, uh, and those mean a lot to me because those people who gave it to me knew the story. Um, I couldn't go and try a court, but I'm always still curious about the legal system. And we do a lot of work here in our family foundation on um, the mass incarceration system in America. And since Michael Brown was killed in 2014, I've learned a lot more than I would have ever known otherwise. And I, I tell his family that he did not die in vain. There's lots of things that have happened since that we would not have known about had, it, had that not occurred. And so they should think of the good side of what we're still thinking about and doing and trying to improve since Michael Brown uh, left our planet. I think it's very important that you're so involved in in some of these other issues that maybe other entrepreneurs, business people don't want to publicly touch or, or you know, speak on. Uh, being vocal, it sounds like you're not you're not afraid to be vocal. Um, when you were in entering that, they can't the fire retail. me. I'm, an, I'm a volunteer. You know, so <laughs> That's can, a great point. It's true. I think when you're working and you you know somebody else is paying your paycheck, they might have rules and regs about that. And of course, as a business owner, especially a company as high profile as Build a Bear, I was always really careful. Um, but I think people, because of the nature of the company and we're about hugs and smiles and kids and all kids and all ages, three to 103, I think people understood where I, where I would stand on most issues that involved humanity. 
So when you were in the corporate world, were you vocal about pushing women forward? Because I, I would imagine when you first entered the corporate uh, retail world, um, the work environment was maybe not as inclusive as it is today. Were, were you on the forefront, um, at least within uh, the May company or May department stores? Women have always been in retail, people selling uh, in uh, lingerie or cosmetic departments or things that they thought women were more suited for. But actually... Um, I was totally suited for it. And there were women coming up, uh, not not many at manager levels, buyer level. And one of the great things about the retail business that I've always said is it's about results. You see your sales every single day. And I, I didn't know how good I was going to be at it. I was like right out of college. I went to work for a man who was very smart, and then he had to take time off. And one of the great things was that his um, all of our suppliers were so worried that this little kid, literally small and young, was going to ruin his department. And Harry would come back and he wouldn't have his bonus and I would have destroyed. I'm sure that's what they were thinking. But instead, I knew that. I kind of imagined what they were thinking. And I said, no, I, I need your help. I want to make it the best department that when he comes back, he has the biggest bonus he ever had. And it was 1971. And it was, um, women were coming to work in huge quantities now. And there was nothing to buy, to wear. Everything looked like man, men's clothes. And so it, things were made in America at that time, mostly. And so I could jigger the the assortments and I could order and get get it in in time. And so when Harry came back, he got the biggest bonus he ever had. And he did share it with me and I wasn't bonus eligible. Um, and the, the what happened from that was every day that I could see the sales and I'd say what would sell and what would what not sell. And I can go and play with that. I love data. I've always loved information. And uh, in those days we had it on big spreadsheets, not in, in a, you know, Google or on um, Excel. And but you had to figure it out. You know, you had to lay it out and look at it. And things would come and appear to you that you could change, that you could fix. And when I know something's not working, I'm, at, I'm there to fix it. And I, I don't know how not to do that. You know, and sometimes I shouldn't be doing that. Sometimes it's not my role. And I've learned that over time, that I need to work alongside a lot of other people to do it. That goes a little slower sometimes, but it also makes for more meaningful change. And I've learned that along the way, too. But it's very similar. Uh, building a company and building a project like this and being part of a community and being part of a company um, are, are not very different. People are people and they want to know what's going on and they want to be included. They want to be part of the success. Uh, they want their little bit of that, of the, what my teachers and my bosses let me do. And I try to do that. Uh, one of our most fun things is the summer interns that we have at our family foundation every summer. They add so much value. When we, at the end of the summer, we we ask them to show us our re their resume and what they wrote about their experience. They always undervalue what they did here, because we, we let them pick a project, but we save up these projects for that that fresh brain that comes with you know so much open mindedness. And they do one one student, uh, Washu student, did a project on. Um, all of the housing, low-income housing in the city of St. Louis, senior, low-income, all, all of it. We have a whole gigantic project on this. Who knew? The mayor didn't even have it. You know, that no one had done that. And so when we get mad at neighbors who don't want any more of it, we said, why don't they want it? Look where they live now. Well, that's why, because it's oversaturated. There's no balance of economic uh, income. And in neighborhoods like this, for instance, when, when retailers or people want to come and they look at the income, they go, that's not enough for us. Well, all these people that live here spend their money and they spend it somewhere else. 
They spend it at Target or they spend it five miles away at the mall or, you know, they're spending their money. They just, they don't have any choice to spend it here. So how do we change that story? And I have that business mind and that business curiosity to dig into that data and use that data for good, you know, for making better decisions. And we've done that here. In fact, we had students from WashU help us um, do a pro the project on the economic development of this project. You know, what did the neighbors want? And they were totally objective, these kids. They went out and they did all the research. They did the study. And that's why we have a bank. That's why we have a deli. That's why we have the pharmacy and the urgent care and the Edward Jones office, because that's what the neighbors said they wanted. Down to the name deli, not deli divine, but they wanted a deli. And to them, they may have had a different opinion of what a deli was, but they meant, I think they meant sandwiches, breakfast, lunch, affordable. And it's an incredibly popular amenity in our neighborhood now, not just in our project. People come from all over St. Louis to eat at the Dally Divine. So not to jump too far ahead to where we are today, but on that topic, are the retail concepts here at Del Mar Divine uh, successful in your eyes? Yes, they're new. We just are about a year old with the retail, but yes, they're doing well, and I think they're meeting their expectations. In fact, the St. Louis Community Credit Union told me that they've made about almost a million dollars worth of loans since they opened last fall, a year ago fall, uh, in this neighborhood. There was no nobody to do that. So those people that are getting home improvement loans, car loans, small business loans, that's the proof is in the over time. Uh, and I remember how hard it was for me. I couldn't even borrow money for Build-A-Bear. Uh, I was a woman, even though I'd run a, a multi-billion dollar company before I started my own. It was just crazy. And that was 1996. So I don't want that to happen to other people. And there's so many incredible ideas that our young people have on their college campuses after they leave college but they don't exactly always know where to start. And, and hopefully these kinds of communities where there's affordable shop openings or you know, places to put your services, whether it's a bank or it's a, uh, uh, an, ad, an ad agency, there's lots of people to, um, serve, to, be, to be served. You just gave me something to think about. Um, community banks, I deal with a lot of community banks in my business, and they're always about the communities they serve. But if your community doesn't have a bank, how is your community getting served? I, I've never really thought about that before. Yes, it's, it's, it's a, great a real big issue, and they don't have it, so they go all over the place, and that banker doesn't necessarily feel connected to that person, and they probably can't get a mortgage from that bank because the bank might be in Clayton, and they live in 63112, and that bank, Clayton banker isn't going to think that the value of the land in 63112 is anywhere close to what he can be using that money for in Clayton. And we're literally, for people that don't know, we're... 10 minutes from Clayton? Is that fair to say? Not Less even. Less than that? I live in Clayton, and it takes me uh, seven minutes to get here every day. So there you go. Yeah, it's uh, very close. And that's one of the other things about St. Louis. Uh, I had a visitor here from Harlem last week, and she works in Harlem, and it does development in Harlem. And I took her all over St. Louis, from uh, the airport to here, from here north to um, the NGA. And she's this looks like Harlem nine years ago. And I don't think we think about that. You know, I don't think we realize that we can be, we can take a, the cultural opportunity of St. Louis, the history, and bring it alive and also bring other cultures to the table here. Because when you go to Harlem, you don't just eat soul food. <laughs> You're eating, there's all kinds of food there and all kinds of people living there because diversity is welcome. It was part of its culture. And so how do we bring that culture back here in St. Louis? Because this neighborhood here, um, the West End it was called, and it's still called the West End, was an immigrant neighborhood. And people came here to work before the World's Fair, to work on the World's Fair. There were um, synagogues and churches right next to each other. In fact, the church across the street, Grace and Peace, was a Jewish synagogue. And right behind us was Visitation Academy. And then uh, the YMHA, Young Men's Hebrew Association, is on Union. 
And Soldan High School had a large propensity of uh, Jewish students that were graduating from there. So, you know, these are all things that make, God doesn't care who's operating in that church, that, that place of worship, just as long as somebody's still praying to someone, to their God, and helping the world be a better place. And so I always think that's kind of a really good tell when there's lots of houses of worship that you could convert to community, different houses of worship, but also to community spaces. The Union Congregational Church, which is on uh, Union and and, um, Enright, is the Union Choir. They found a way to be even more than a church, and they they support theater and music and have all kinds of, they have an art gallery in there. What a wonderful thing to think about, and that church is thriving versus other churches that may be falling behind. We could get into a million ideas of what's possible in St. Louis with all the archives that we have uh, and the amenities that we have that we don't also play up. But this, to me, this location that we're in right now on Del Mar is Hollywood and Vine in, De- in St. Louis. It's near to everything, and that's why the, the retail that we have here and the number of people that work here are so strong is because it's easy to access. It's close to everything, and it also, you know, the parking helps, the, the transportation helps, but people get it. It's not like a hard decision to come on to Del Mar. It might be harder to go north of Del Mar. We, we're working on that. But over time, as we keep expanding and there's more housing and more beautiful apartments that people can live in, and some of these buildings are just magnificent. In New York or Philadelphia or Chicago, they would be worth millions, just an apartment, not not the whole building. And people here have not appreciated that history. When I first came to St. Louis, I bought a house in Lafayette Square. I thought I'd died and gone to heaven because I came from Washington, D.C., where I couldn't have afforded anything like that. But I had a townhouse in a beautiful historic neighborhood like my Georgetown was that I couldn't afford to live there. Um, so I would say that we don't realize the c- tremendous opportunity that we have, especially in the city of St. Louis. But whether you choose to live north, south, east, or this is the West End, there's plenty of opportunity uh, to improve what, what is, exists and make it at least as good as it used to be, whatever that used to be was, but, um, but better. I fully agree with you. I take, I'm not from St. Louis, uh, so I take every opportunity I can to tell people how great St. Louis is. Uh, you have a metro area that has great bones, one, and then two, it has cultural amenities that a city of its size would never have because of its significance, you know, 100 years ago. So just like you're saying, I think St. Louis can be great. I think it will be great. Um, and that's what's kept me here because I don't ha- really have necessarily ties that kept me in St. Louis. I decided to be here. I could have been anywhere. Uh, when you moved to St. Louis, aside from your job keeping you here, I would imagine you could have gone anywhere afterward, but you stayed. Uh, is that the reason why you stayed? Because of the potential here? Well, you know, lots of circumstances come to play. I was here. I, I didn't even know where St. Louis was on the map. I had to look it up when they told me I was moving to St. Louis. I had an idea, but I had never been this far west. And I um, said, I'll be there for a couple of years. I'm moving up the company ladder. They have stores all over the country. But I did like it here because I could have a house. I could, have, I could own something right away, and I wasn't making very much money. I could work near downtown. I could you know, walk to restaurants. Even then in Lafayette Square, we had cute restaurants. And, and the people there that were build, rebuilding their houses had a, had a sense of history of St. Louis, even if they weren't from St. Louis. So I, that was a reason. But then I met my husband, and that was another reason to stay. But there were, this was the headquarters of the May department stores. So we had May Company corporate offices. We had Famous Bar. We had venture stores. And there was lots of room for me to grow in this particular city. And that's how. Just uh, real quick on that. 
for folks that don't know, because I, I, I don't know, and I didn't know until I did the research, May department stores would be the equivalent of what today? Well, it was bought by Macy's. Okay. So it was, uh, there used to be department store chains all across the country. And what they did, Macy's and May and others, bought up local department stores that were historically built in towns like St. Louis, and then, you know, made them part of a corporate membership, so to speak. May Company had stores all over. And uh, this was our corporate headquarters in the Railway Exchange Building, which makes me really sad but optimistic about what that building can be again because I went to work there every day. And it had beautiful you know, windows and elevators and office spaces, just lovely. Um, and I, it was so convenient. you know. So I, I know that it's possible. And we can. The, it's not so much that we can't bring people back to work downtown. I'm not sure about all the, the retail that you need around it, that whether or not there's enough uh, out there that's really successful enough that would want to be in down, in a downtown environment and that wouldn't be a chain store, if you will. You know, all the chain stores. What what those chain stores started as one small company, whether it was Build-A-Bear or Banana Republic or, you know, they started as one store and then somebody turned them into a chain and made them more commercial and more una instead of unique. Sure. And so the, I think that there's a real big opportunity for people to be starting new retail companies that have a new personality and a new persona and appeal to the customer today. Uh, and they're popping up around, but but I don't know that there's as many nosy people as me traveling around the country looking for those and saying, I want that in my mall. I, they don't need to have thousands of stores. They just need to have a few hundred at the most. So they're always special. I remember I went to Miami uh, from one of my high school reunions and I went shopping and I thought, was excited to go to Coconut Grove. It was a neighborhood right near where I lived. And every store was The Gap or Banana Republic or, you know, all these stores that I had in St. Louis. And I was disappointed that there weren't more local stores to buy something unique that I, I could not see in my own hometown. So I think that that's another thing that we crave is that uniqueness. And we go on vacation. We have Build-A-Bear stores in so many vacation locations because when people go on vacation, they go looking to do something different and to bring something home that's a, a memory of that. And that's what Build-A-Bear is, is a, is a memory of that. But I would say that here, too, at Demo Vine, we're building memories where, where people are working together like they haven't worked before, which was my main goal, to build a place and a space where people could come together instead of, you know, living all, all disparate places all over the city and not being able to work together. And that's what we're building is a community here of people working together. And it's happening faster than I thought because the place is more important than I thought. I thought, okay, I can build a space, but it's going to be all about the people. But it, the people can't act the way they want to act if they don't have a place to have the meeting, uh, to bring other people together to have the meeting, that they can find a place to eat, bank, go to the doctor when they need it. So we have 670 people that have a, a, a pass to get in this building that work here. That's a lot of people post-COVID. And we have uh, 300, I mean, um, 235 people that live in the apartments, and they're all full. You know, so this is good. And those people go to the deli and go, you know, take the bus and, you know, you buy other things in the community. And this was an empty building for probably about 10 years, mostly empty. And it, the, if it was occupied by doctor's offices when, when they had that here, fewer employees than what, what are working in, in these same rooms now. Uh, it sounds like you really love building, whether that's building a business, bu building real estate, whatever the case is. Um, and I know you're obviously very strate strategic the way you were able to scale Build-A-Bear and some of your other endeavors. So was the 
the ability to build again, one of the factors for wanting to jump into Build-A-Bear after having such a distinguished retail career. Uh, I know there's there's a Beanie Baby story that kind of comes into play here as well, but uh, I would imagine as you work up uh, or go up the corporate ladder, you're less involved in the building phase or maybe being able to be creative. Is that one of the reasons why uh, in your 40s you decided to take the risk of entrepreneurship? Well, I was very entrepreneurial working for the Make Company. Uh, we owned Payless Shoe Source, and I was the president of that for four years. And we grew from one store, Payless Kids, to all across the country within our own company. You know, like there's lots of things. I was I was doing a entrepreneurship on somebody else's nickel, so I knew I was always good at. It. I had a, that's why they I was successful. I had ideas, and I was willing to try them and then scale them. Uh, and when you're doing it on somebody else's money, it, it might seem a little bit easier because it's not your money, it's not your risk. But if you don't aren't successful, you're fight, you know, don't have a job anymore. So there is a risk involved. But I was always good at that. And again, back to loving to go on field trips and seeing how things are made. I ask a million questions. I don't just go into it without, you know, just oh, it's it's my idea and I'm doing it. That's not it. You really need to have community involved, whoever that community is, your customers. And my first board of directors for Build a Bear was children. But I left May Company when they spun off Payless as a separate company, and I was going to do my, finally, I said, I'm going to do my own thing. I don't know exactly what it is, but it's 1996, and the um, world is changing rapidly with the use of computers, and everything was becoming um, high-tech versus high-touch. And I felt felt it was time, still, still people wanted that connection, and that doing something for children, I had a really big idea. Uh, that was uh, complicated because of children's privacy. But I, lo I love this idea of a child walking into a store and the door would know because of the, the little badge the child had that said, hi, Mary, how are you? Welcome back. How is the, the did you finish that book that we, you bought here? You know, things like that, that kids would feel welcome. Because, you know, it's when you go to a store and they say hi to you or you, it's your birthday and they give you a special gift, you know, you feel special. And we've kind of forgotten some of those things, even more so lately than, I mean, post-COVID than pre-COVID. But... Um, so I wanted to create that special place. And what I wanted to do was really expensive. I was talking to Microsoft about it. And we, we didn't even have all the COPA laws and things for children's privacy that we have now. But imagine how much information we could have gathered. And, and, and we would have only used it for good. But, um, but then that Katie and Jack and I went looking for Beanie Babies after school one day. And when she couldn't find the one she wanted, and she said, you know, these are so easy. We could make these. The light bulb, I had a light bulb, Willy Wonka moment in my head, which I had for every other idea I had prior and um, had for the same thing here. Uh, I can see it really clearly in my head. And then it's easier to write that business plan to make that vision, um, you know, come through. And vision, it's a real vision. I mean, I can go and sketch it, not perfectly, but I can kind of give you an idea of what it looked like. And um, the kids went down to pull out all the craft supplies because that's what they thought we were going to do. And I went upstairs and was netscaping because it was very slow um, and looking for a business I could buy because I didn't think you had to invent it. And that's another thing that I tell people that there are a lot of businesses that there's a there's an owner looking to sell that business and you could take it, an existing business and something that you're interested in and turn it into a 21st century business. How many stories have we heard? Bob Clark, who's the um, uh, owner of Clayco, uh, he bought, it was his family business, but it was a small business. I think it was a painting contractor. And look what he turned it into. I mean, imagine those. There's so many businesses looking for a new owner. We were just talking about that before, and what what the a person with vision and caring for human beings and seeing possibility could create from that existing business. Um, I couldn't find. I did try. I mean, there were several businesses that were in the manufacturing of teddy bears, um, but they wouldn't sell it to me. They thought I was crazy. So Katie said, "Why don't we do it? 
And I thought, why not? No, why not? You know, like there was no reason not to really. And we went about doing it. And nine months later, we opened our first store at the St. Louis Galleria. This project, from idea to reality, was about nine years. Um, so when you're trying to do good and um, save a building and save a neighborhood, it's a little bit more complicated than just opening one store. Even if I had a business planned for, um, I should have brought it in here. I have a, a bound copy of my business plan, a 10-year business plan that was uh, well laid out that I had to convince myself first that it's worth doing before you could convince the banker, the real, the landlord, the all the other you know people that you have to talk about in a process of building a business. But I knew how to do it on somebody else's nickel. I just had never had to do it myself. But I wasn't alone. I could call everybody I ever knew in the May Company. And that's what I did do. I said, could you give me a place for the, somebody who I could talk to about logistics? Could you give me, because it was all around me. I didn't have to do any of that. I didn't have to worry about the warehouse. Um, I didn't have to worry about how things got there. They gave us a purchase order. You set, gave it to the vendor. It told them where to ship it. Everything was pretty much laid out. And unless you were in that department, you didn't really have to dig in too much, even though I probably dug in more than most because I was nosy, um, wanted to know how it worked. But it isn't that complicated. I think people make things overly complicated. Everything doesn't have to be on this. Build-A-Bear was one store. This was, yes, uh, nine buildings, and it was a big project uh, real estate-wise to take over. That wasn't the hard part. The hard part was all the technical stuff to build it and reimagine it and make it safe for the 21st century, um, get rid of all the bad things that were in the building and put in the good things, make it seem more connected than just buildings that were cut and pasted together. You know this as a, a person who works in development. Uh, but that's the fun of figuring it out. It's like a big, giant puzzle, and we work on that. That's how we think about it is one piece at a time. How can we connect those two pieces, That two, those two people? We, this room here, we, we have many, many meetings. Um, to work, bring people together who are um, want more help on what they're doing and are willing to work with somebody else, but don't know who those people are. We can do that. That's one of the advantages of being a, ma a mature person. I've met a lot of people in my life, and it is that's the easiest part of what I do, is connecting someone to each other so they can do one plus one equals 100. It doesn't always have to be me. And sometimes one plus one can be 1,000 when it's the right people getting together and have the speed and the financial wherewithal to act more quickly for the good of St. Louis. But overall, um, ideas come from everywhere. Wherever I go, I'm looking for an idea. I'm taking a picture. My kit, now that we have these devices, I can take a picture of it so I don't have to forget it. Um, and I remember going into stores, copying, you know, looking for ideas in a retail store, and you had to have a little tiny camera, and then you had to wait to get it developed. And now you can just, nobody even stops you to, to ask you what you're doing. Uh, but uh, that, and I just put them in my file. I have a folder of ideas, and I'm, you know, I'll use them eventually, um, although maybe the right, the right project hasn't come to me yet. But I see as I travel around St. Louis, I could talk about this forever, you know, so many potential projects. Uh, based on the history and culture of the neighborhood where that building is or was or is falling apart in, uh, and I'm working on that. That's one of my next goals. After we finish phase two here is I have a couple of ideas of how we can um, further bring opportunity from all over the country, actually, into the heritage of St. Louis because it's part of our heritage. And uh, I work with Arch Grants. I'm on the board of Arch Grants, and I work with a lot of entrepreneurs at Washington University. That's where it's at. It's at Network for Teaching Entrepreneurship, which is in high schools, is encouraging these young people to stay vested in St. Louis and to realize that their idea can, if my idea could come to be in St. Louis, their idea could come to be in St. Louis too. There's no, there's nothing in the way of that. Just you have to be willing to write a plan and move and groove with that plan. And most people write a PowerPoint now. They don't really write a detailed plan. But if you aren't convinced and you don't know what you're doing, 
You won't know what you don't know, and you won't hire the right people to help you do what you don't know. And that's one of my other strengths is I know what I don't know, and that's related to the curiosity, but I'm always willing to learn. And I feel that's what my maybe my biggest strength is. My superpower is the curiosity, but my strength is I know I don't know it all, and I'm learning it every day from the people that live in this neighborhood, the young people that work in this building, the students that I come in touch with. They keep you moving and they keep you young. And I hope I did that for people too when I was in their place, that I was um, sharing what I learned. And um, I have so many young friends, uh, a young um, art student at Washington University who uh, was here this summer working in an entrepreneur, as an entrepreneur's, in an entrepreneurial company, not here at Del Mar Divine, but in St. Louis through the Scandalera Center. And he called me up after the meeting and he said, I have an idea. And he came over and met me and he showed me what he does. His name is Mac Barnes, and he's a quilter, but not a quilter that you would wear on your bed, you know, like a warm quilt. He does art. And he's actually a computer science major, and when he came to St. Louis, he's a sophomore, when he came to St. Louis as a freshman, he discovered that he could use computers in art as well. And he had a background, his mother, his grandmother, his family members were artists, and so he started to put that to work. But he had an idea to do a quilt based on the history of Del Mar Divine that we could use here. And... Um, that's going to come to be this year. And he went and find, found a grant, and he has an idea, and, and we're going to bring neighbors and students from Crossroads High School, and everybody's going to come together. So this will be a like an old-fashioned quilt where people used to sit and quilt together and tell stories. Women who were doing this, they were make, telling a family story. We're going to tell a story not necessarily of our families, but of other families that have lived here and live here today. So we're very excited about that project. And it just takes a, a minute you know, to make a, a connection. And all that will be done in probably by the time that we would have met for a year. So he came here last summer and we'll have it done by then probably. And so, or close, close to that. And you say, see, that's not very long, right? You know, a year is not, is nothing in the, in the life of a student or in the life of a, a, a community like Del Mar. So um, what a blessing it is for me actually to be able to um, take an, a student's idea like that and then make it help him bring it into reality, but it benefits our community in more ways than I can even imagine right now, even sitting. And I have a big imagination. I'm really happy uh, to see just how passionate you are about every business that you go into, because it sounds like real estate has a full grip of you right now, just in terms of uh, the all various ideas you have, not only with Del Mar Divine, but also with some of your future projects. And I'm, I'm really tempted to jump right into real estate because that's you know the business I'm in. Um, but we had listeners and viewers who had a couple more questions about Build-A-Bear before we jump into uh, Del Mar Divine. Um, so with Build-A-Bear, your first store at the Galleria still there today. 25 plus years later, correct? Almost 27. You mentioned the the business plan. Your first business plan, you planned for, I think it was three years out at the time, wanting to be in a particular mall or retail district for the 100th anniversary of the teddy bear. So that level of detail that you had in that business plan, is that what you maybe attribute some of your success to? And then also, is that the type of detail you had with Delmar Divine, any other future yes. endeavors? Yes. Uh, I think in complete stories, and then you have to work backwards. And so that story doesn't always exactly look like what you said it was going to look like. But the t we started Build-A-Bear in 1997, and the, the 100th anniversary of the teddy bear was going to be in 2004. So we, when we were working on the—we uh, had our first store open. It was very successful, and landlords were wanting us to be in their mall. And Roosevelt Field, which is in New York metro area on Long Island, is a very, very popular mall, very successful. And um, we wanted to be there in sort of record time by, by 2004. 
uh, or actually 2002, I think it was. And we worked with Simon to say, that's what we want. And they gave us a store um, a year before, but it wasn't in the best location and it wasn't going to be big enough. And we told them all of our plans for the grand opening and how we were going to you know, tell the story. And so they found us a better location and we did open it in that year. And so that was just sort of milestones inside the, the plan. There were many of those, though, um, because we... Uh, wanted to cover certain cities. We wanted to be there when that um, the, that mall opened or that uh, event was going on uh, that was a national event. I'm a history person. I love all those things. I want to help teddy bears tell the story. You might know that Gigi is the bear that just went into the spaceship. This is her second uh, trip around um, on the spaceship. Uh, we like to participate in things like that that are educational and fun and kind of a little bit, why would they take a teddy bear into space? Why not take a teddy bear into space? She has her own space outfit and everything. Um, it, it is just part of who we are, and that's been the culture since we started. When, when our first um, sport, I love sports. I, I love basketball. I was a, My next-door neighbor was a basketball coach at the University of Miami. has nothing to do with my height. It's just the skills that you learn. And my, our first sports license was with the NBA. And... Uh, one of my investors would love basketball, too. He said, I'm going to introduce you to people at the NBA. And we went there, and it was like kind of the most exciting day. They had no idea that I had this basketball history and that I knew so much about basketball. But that was our first, we were a little teeny company, and they agreed to do that. We were a little teeny company. In 2001, we went into Disneyland. And Disney then said, we want you to make all of our licensed products. And we still, we make many, many, many of them. Um, we had to float in the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. We had a plan for that. But I didn't know exactly when it would happen, but it did happen. And and famous people like the Jonas Brothers and Miley Cyrus and Jason Bieber, Justin Bieber were on our float. And we sort of were part of their career, too. And they loved Build-A-Bear. They didn't think it was corny to be on the Build-A-Bear float. They thought it was cool to be on the Build-A-Bear float. So you can create cool. You know, you can create fun. You can create and every single endeavor, whether it's a real estate project or a, a building that you're starting, or a business that you're starting in the mall, can be fun for the consumer and fun for the um, for you. If it's not fun for you and the people that work for you, who's going to? Why would they do it in today's world? Uh, your first partnership was with the NBA, um, and that was through an investor. He made a few connections for you, which um, I think is a great story, and it really speaks to what you were saying in the beginning. A lot of your connections or people you knew uh, were what helped you with Build a Bear. Mm -hmm. Were those connections also what helped you work through situations that maybe were challenging? For example, I would imagine finding a manufacturer was hard, and I, I believe you found a manufacturer in China. And then also you had um, a warehouse in North City early on where you lost, I think, all of your inventory. W were connections what helped you navigate some of those situations? Well, uh, yes, always it's about the people that surround you and who, who you you hire to surround you who can help you resolve problems. You. You, if you know everything, you will be in serious trouble. You'll hit something that you where you don't know. But um, I built up over the 25 years of working with the May Company tons of relationships. Um, I merchandised areas that had toys and plush slippers. And so when I went to do this, I knew who to call. I, but, but I wasn't sure they would do it because usually minimums are very high. And we only had one store. We didn't really know exactly how many we were going to buy of any one thing. Um, but I went to people that were, um, I guess, people that I work with. Little did I know deep inside they were also like, you know, wanting to do something different and nobody ever brought that idea to them. They were manufacturers, so they weren't retailers themselves. And when I brought an idea to them that they in 
they loved and they thought, oh, my kids will even like this. They were happy to help me. So those were um, longstanding relationships. They just made something else. The people that made our shoes for bears made shoes for humans. The, um, so they were very uh, happy to help. And, you know, they said they would invest in the beginning, not, not invest, give me cash, but they would make the, the minimum that I needed. Um, we worked out some things. Sometimes it was 200, sometimes it was 500, sometimes it was 1,000. But um, we worked around it. You know, we, I figured, well, the worst thing is if I have to throw it in the trash because it didn't sell. But we, it didn't, that didn't happen. You mentioned the warehouse that, that was in North St. Louis. The roof caved in. We were on the first floor. You know, everything we had came, you know, fell down. The dust and the dirt and everything fell down on our stuff. We couldn't even get to it for weeks to take an account of it. And that was everything we had bought from the store opening in October to Easter, because we knew the, the Chinese New Year's in there and delivery. So we thought it's what we thought. But it was actually a blessing in a weird way, because I had my vendor said to me, just let me know what you want to order. We'll make it in the sample room and we'll ship it to you. We'll ship it to the store because you don't have the warehouse right now. So I went home and I looked at all of our selling reports. And believe it or not, well, it's not so hard to believe. Not everything was selling. It, we were doing great. We were surpassing our plans, but some things were going to sell out anyway. And so he said, you know, just, just reorder the things that you think are going to sell. Don't worry about the things that weren't. But what was left in the store were some of the things that had not sold before. But by the time the new stuff came in, all of it was doing, you know, gone. the bad things were gone and the new things were turning really quickly. So I probably wouldn't have looked at those reports until after Christmas in real depth because I knew we had all that inventory to sell and I was just thinking, you know, we had enough to fill up the shelves. And I had a vision when I got that phone call about the warehouse that we would have nothing on the wall. So those relationships and the vendor, the vendors all said, don't worry about paying us until you can. Um, just we'll ship it to you. We'll keep track of everything and we'll pay. And that became the kind of terms that we worked on, you know, like I, uh, we had, used to have to pay before it left China, and then it would get here, and then we get to our stores. But now we, we didn't have to pay for it till after we sold it, which was really great, um, a great way to, for cash flow. Uh, so um, there was, everyone was so kind and so helpful, but it wasn't based on one relationship. It was based on years of knowing me and knowing that I didn't cause this problem, and you know it wasn't something stupid that I did, other than I didn't have you know, the right kind of insurance. Uh, we finally did get paid about five years later, but luckily we had investors and we had the vendors who were supporting us. And our landlord would say, "Don't worry about the rent. You know, you can pay us back. You can back pay us soon." But that wasn't a problem. We had enough sales to do those things. Um, thank goodness the business was was booming. Uh, we just had to get that inventory back in stock. So that was a really good thing to happen in our first store, because if it had happened, we had twenty stores or thirty stores, it would have been really difficult to you know, bring all that inventory back in. But that way they could help us and ship it. We we're getting shipments every day. And um, and it was all the good stuff, not the, not the stuff that didn't sell. Without that help um, from some of the vendors working with you, uh, I'm sure that could have been a situation that essentially ended Build-A-Bear with insurance yes. paying five yes. years later. Could have. Um, but I had enough. I had the financial resources yeah. also. Okay. But I did have an investor already. And... Um, Somebody I didn't know, that's a wonderful St. Louis story also, who saw the story in the Business Journal in July and called me up and asked me if I was looking for investors. And um, I met, met with him the next week, and he said, I'm ready. What, 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 you know, how much should I own of the company? And we worked it all out, and he was a great partner. In fact, all the way to the IPO, uh, we're at the last day of the IPO and we're in Minneapolis, you know, having met with investors. And he called me on the phone and said, I don't want to sell. I said, Barney. We have to sell. We already sold it. We've basically been on the road selling. He says, I don't want to sell. I still want to be a part of Build-A-Bear. 
And I said, we always be a part of Build-A-Bear, but this is a pro rata share. And, you know, and he, he, the next morning he called me and he said, I'm, I won't screw it up. I'll, I'm in. But that was such a wonderful, you know, statement on his part. He wanted to still be a part of Build-A-Bear. And I think like me, now that I'm the age he was when he was doing that, I'm thinking, that's how you stay connected. You invest in young people. You invest in people who who you think have promised to get things done in the world. And that's what I do too. And it is, it's a wonderful joy to be able to, even when they fail, you know, the failings part of the, of the process. I didn't have that problem because I didn't start Build-A-Bear until I was 48 years old. I had a lot of experience. I knew when to, the signs of things turning bad and I knew the signs of we got to buy more. You know, the customer demand is, is there. They don't know that. They're too, they sometimes start a business too young without the life experience and don't have the money to hire the person with all the experience that could help them or finding that right chemistry with a person that you really trust. So trust is a big um, missing sometimes in business endeavors and people don't know who to trust and they're afraid to share their idea. I was never afraid to share my idea. That's how it got to be so good. In fact, we haven't made everything that customers suggested to us over the last 27 years. We still have a lot of content to go. And that is really, a, you know, that's a wonderful reservoir of information is your customer. You mentioned trust and earlier in the conversation, we talked about the caring and inclusion. So I'm sure that was all part of the culture you built at Build-A-Bear. What are you taking from there in terms of the way you built the culture and the customer experience? Because uh, for anyone that's not not aware, you were a pioneer in what we'll call experiential retail. Um, what are you taking from there that you're applying today to the real estate endeavors? Mm -hmm. Well, the same thing is true. I mean, people want to have an experience. Uh, with, and, and there are all kinds of experiences. When you check into a hotel, how they treat you, and when you go to an airport, how they treat you. And some of those are pretty lousy. And, you know, before you get to the, the hotel of your dreams, you've had 14 missteps because of the airport and the traffic and whatever. How does that turn into something positive? And we all have a big challenge in that. But that's the fun of it is, is wowing the customer. And most of the time, it's nothing fancy. As, you know, as we started our conversation talking, we think it is, but it isn't. It's just it's it's the um, ability for them to do their work and their and to or shop or in a place that's pleasant that people are friendly to them. It's really the little things that matter, the things that people notice. And as a woman, I noticed them all my whole life. I mean, one of the things I do when the first thing when I was looking for a mall location for Bilber, I went to the to the mall bathrooms. Are they clean? Are they neat? Are people in there? Are people complaining about them? What kind of customer shops here? You know, you go into the places that that people wouldn't. You don't think the the landlord knows too much about, and then you find out a lot about it. And it's the same thing in a school. You know, when you go into a school, what do the bathrooms look like in that school? Are the mirrors broken? Are the is the water running? Is there hot and cold water? Are they all the toilet out of order? Are they working? You know, what does that say about a building and a building manager and a building person who's responsible? And I think that's just human. That's what we all would want, right? It's not, that isn't anything fancy. That's just sort of expected. But if the expect, expected is better than expected, it's a wow. And, and that's what we should do. And everybody who works in a, in a place should be wowing others. What we find here um, is that, actually. People feel welcome here. People. One Sunday, I was here on a Sunday and um, working, and a neighbor calls me. She doesn't know I'm here. She lives right behind us here. And she said, Maxine, I'm really worried about the neighborhood. And I said, what's wrong? And she said, well, there's some people getting off the bus. There's a lot of people getting off the bus and coming in your building. And they don't look like people that should be in this neighborhood. And I said, well, I'm here, Kim. Why don't you come over and, you know, let's, I'll, we'll go see. And I knew exactly what it was. Edward Jones was having a financial empowerment 
class, and they brought in great speakers, and they had lunch, and they invited 150 people to come, more than 150. 150 people came to this Sunday lunch meeting, and people brought their families, and there were family activities. And she came in, and she's, her mouth hung open, and she says, I'm sorry, I had no idea. I said, these are people that aspire to live here that go see your house from the street and they go, I want to live in a house like that. That's how I was on a little girl riding my bike. And she says, you're right. I'm so sorry. I, who am I to have said that? And I think that's one of those things that people, they, at least because they feel comfortable telling me the thing, what makes them mad and what makes them happy, they, we can solve it. But if you never know and you never ask, you'll never be able to f- make it more pleasant or repair the damage that might have been done. And so... You can see me anytime picking up trash because this is like a wind tunnel here. It can be windy and trash comes from other, and I'll go, we have trash cans everywhere and I'll, people will see me. And she told me one day, she says, I saw you picking up trash. Are you, you, do you have time for a, to just have a cup of coffee? I said, sure, come on, on over, come over. You know, like those are things that make a difference. So the little things, it's not that, it's no effort for me to bend down and pick up the trash. It's very powerful though to see you do that. That's, I, I didn't, I wasn't aware of the extent to which you're involved in the daily operations yeah. here. And I think that's well, I'm not in charge of the trash, but I am in charge of the trash. I don't want people to work in an environment that they think looks musty or dirty. Or and of course, since COVID, people are afraid to pick up anything dirty. But but you can go wash your hands after you've done it, you know. So, but that and also opening up our rooms, our meeting rooms are we have tons of them here. They're meant for our tenants, and they mostly are used by our tenants. But our tenants have partners outside of the Del Mar Divine, and they can also come to the the meeting. And we do things for Black History Month, and we do things for. Um, training, and we do all kinds of things here that um, we'd, we thought of some of them, but we didn't think of all of them, and many of them have come from the ideas of our of our tenants that we wouldn't have even known they had because we never met with them as often as we could have, even if I was a donor to that charity. I just didn't know everything that they were doing. And um, we've had new people come here, new employees that come here that are you know so happy to be here. 670 people work in an office building that was built after COVID, and they come to work here. Not every day, because a lot of people work out in the field, but they're here, and they're proud to say they work here, and that really matters to me. Um, you know that as a building owner. You have to keep things up. People want to be proud of what they're, where they live and what they do. So um, we're, we're trying to create the same environment here on a much tighter budget than we had at Build-A-Bear, and I thought that was a tight budget. So in terms of um, Delmar Divine and what you have going on today, before we talk, and if I don't know if you're comfortable sharing some of the future plans, I'd love to hear them. But it sounds like, based on what you said, some of the strong tw- traits that you have as a leader are leading by example and really listening to people, making yourself accessible. Would you say that's some of the most important skills or traits that a leader should have, or is there any piece missing there? No, I think that is a, a important skills. My bosses were always available to me. Um, I think that maybe they thought, well, she doesn't know what she's doing, so we have to make sure we help her. But that wasn't always the case because I moved up the ladder. But they were always there for me. You might have to make an appointment, but if I had an idea or a question, I just had to have it well thought out. Um, and not necessarily in a formal business plan, but sometimes it was. Um, that was part of what we learned, and we strategized our departments every year. We had a business plan, and we were held to that those results in order to move forward and get raises and promotions, et cetera. So um, that's really what it is, and sometimes they're formal, like a business relationship, and sometimes they're not. You know, they're just your neighbor or your friend or your friend's daughter that you, you know, you've known since she was a child, and you want to help be successful or help if they need something, you know, whatever it is. Sometimes it's a, they need a recommendation on a doctor or they need a recommendation on a place, a, a real estate agent. 
There's a ton of things that they're so easy to come up with. People aren't asking you for the for you know to write them a check for a million dollars. Very rare that anybody. I mean, I'm not saying people haven't asked me for that, but for the most part, it's not the young people that I advise. It's really um, the what they need or the connections to get whatever whatever it is that they need done. And so we keep moving along on that path. Uh, but it isn't. Not every project has to be this big. Mm-hmm. As I said, Build-A-Bear started with one store. This, I happened to be able to purchase this plot of land for a reasonable price. It wasn't that part that was the expensive part. It's the you know remodeling and renovation that costs so much, and then making sure that you can afford it, that you can pay for it, that you know, you're not going to close it two years after you open it. That's a whole other you know, story that happens sometimes in uh, projects like this, or that other people want to come and buy it from you, and they won't operate it the same way that you will, but we have it set up differently here so that it will be this forever. You know, it always need to be you know painted and and touched up, but uh, we hope that the second phase, which will be you know more offices and um, apartments, uh, will make this more permanent and make it. It's a whole city block. I mean, it's really pretty special to have found this. And once. I, when I thought I couldn't get it, people tried to talk me out of it because they, they said, oh, there's smaller buildings you can find. No, it has to be here. This is a corner that was an important corner. It was a big hospital. Famous people were born here. This is going to be the, what's going to change the way people think about Del Mar, and it has done that. I rarely hear people talk about the divide anymore. I think we've done a good job of that, and, of course, all the other things that are coming down Del Mar. And now the next divide is Page Avenue and then Martin Luther King and you know, moving north. We will fix those, too. Are you thinking of doing future projects that are similar to this one? No, different. But yes, a renovation, a, a reimagination of a building. Um, one of the things that I believe strongly in in St. Louis is its history and culture. And as a businesswoman, I admired. I didn't even, you know, I, I knew about them, but I didn't know deeply about Madam C.J. Walker and Annie Malone, that they were the first two millionaires. And they happened to be black women from St. Louis. And they were in the beauty business. And I was a merchandiser. Of, I, I merchandised beauty in my career. And I, I um, knew about them. And so I, I really thought, at the same time I had the idea for this building, I had an idea for another uh, building in the, in the Ville where we would become an incubator for black beauty businesses all over the country to come here and be the place they would ship from, produce from, everything. Because we had a lot of manufacturing here opportunity as well. And so I still want to do that. Um, I know more about them now than I knew about them then, and I know more about the Ville than I knew then, and it's so much a part of its history and culture. It's our Harlem, if you will, and how can we reinvigorate from our history, from things that happened here, from icons that lived here and started an industry, how could we go back and, and play that up and be that be known for that without... It's, it, it happened. I mean, it's a fact. So we didn't, we didn't make the most of that, I don't think, because I think they were black women. And it wasn't as well known as it, as it should have been. But in the beauty business, they're well known. And, um, and they happened here in the Ville. So I, want, I think that's an opportunity for us that I'm working on. I have a, a, a building that I can see that becoming that. Uh, I have no idea inside if it, if it needs $100 million or $10 million, but soon I'm going to be doing that. Soon I'm going to get further into it so I can know that. And I've already started some of the work on it. And then um, one of our tenants here um, is, is a uh, iThrive who has vans that go around, does eye checkups at school, and they have a van. Uh, they moved here because they wanted to be part of this community, but we didn't have a place for their van. And as I've known her and have talked, they, she belongs to an agency, a, a, a group called... Um, Mobile Health Vehicles Association, and it's actually based in St. Louis, the national organization. 
and we were talking about this, and I said, well, maybe we could build a hub for these vehicles that do such good, they bring healthcare to people. And we could build it so that we would have room for like maybe 20, and we'd have a gas station on one end and a car wash on the other, because those are really hard to get for a truck. You have to go all the way out to um, West County to get it, get your truck washed. So you know, how could we bring that in and take some property, not necessarily in the city of St. Louis, might be in Normandy or on Page Avenue, and take an old car dealership or an old Midas muffler or Telly Tire that has the bays and figure that out. So we're looking for, we're actually actively looking for a space for that. Um, and it doesn't have to be here, but it needs to be in proximity because of the centralization. And we might not find a lot that will hold the gas station and the, the um, car wash, but we're working on that. And um, I think that uh, that one is needed because these vehicles are really valuable and you want to have them secure and you want to have their, their, a, a place where the um, mechanic can also be there. Uh, so I'm thinking about uh, put some feelers out to find a local young person who works in car auto mechanics, talk to people at uh, Rankin Tech. Um, we would put them in business to help us. It would be their shop. I mean, we would, they would just, they would own the, the car repair part of it. Not a, we, they would just be, you know, paying us rent, maybe, uh, maybe not, uh, because everybody has somebody that does that, and they're few and far between to find now. Uh, if you have a generator, it's hard to get the generator repaired. So we're learning all this. I mean, once I heard, somebody tells me about this, and I know how much good they do, and I know that we can bring health care to people, it makes a lot of sense. It's sort of not telemedicine, but sort of. Car medicine, auto medicine, you know, you bring that vehicle there. So if we can make people healthier by making the, uh, bringing the healthcare to them, that already exists in our community, but make sure that they're, those, um, the, the vehicles are safe and well taken care of uh, and centrally located so they can get north, south, east, and west, just like they want to. So that's a, a project that sort of came to me this past year, but we're actively working on that for her, and that will bring other people together and made it a lot easier when the National Association is right here in town, right? Um, they have an interest in it as well. So maybe we could make it their headquarters too. Their offices would be there. Who knows? You know, we're not that far, but we're just trying to find the space to make sure we can cover um, somewhere between two to five cars. And if we find a bigger space, because that's what they told us, you're not going to find a place that big. But I'm not, I did see one. It's just way far north. And, and we don't want to be that far north. It needs to be more centrally located. So that's, a, that's an idea. And the reason I'm telling you these and I tell them to other people is once you put it out there in the, in the uh, universe, people go, oh, yeah, oh, I have another idea for you. Or you could do this, or let me introduce you to so-and-so. If you never tell anybody your ideas, it just sits in your little head, and it, never, it doesn't go as far as it could. And I think that's one of the reasons. I've always done that. Build-A-Bear I shared with kids and people, and they added so much more value. Um, this project, people showed me, people told me people that could move here. Um, by the way, you, you can appreciate this. We um, thought we were going to open a lot earlier than we did because it was so much more complex, but we leased it to a whole group of people in the office space, and then they needed to move faster than we were moving, so we had to start leasing it again. And we end, it, it ended up working out really, really well. That The trends that we have, a third are education, a third are mental health and, and um, health in general, and then a third are community development, and you need all those things to repair a community that's lived through so many things like St. Louis, and we will get there. We will get there because we have all of those things here represented in the building. Now, there's many more that make up a community, but they all have tentacles with all those organizations, so we, we can bring people together pretty quickly uh, in an emergency if we had one. Hopefully, we won't have too many, but in a problem-solving um, opportunity that we might see on literacy or on this vehicle challenge. Um, my The other idea, the, the uh, 
innovative center for beauty in St. Louis. I wish we would have started this earlier, but we, through Arch Grants, we've also brought on several companies in the beauty business that I think would be great examples to thrive there. And you have to make it so that it, that it's worth their while because they they're starting out. They have no money. They have no. So you have to have it funded properly, and that's a little bit more complex than uh, just building a building and charging people rent. I do want to be respectful of your time, but but now that we're talking about the real estate piece, I have one more question sure. for you before we wrap up. The way you're describing these projects, Delmar Divine and the future projects, uh, first of all, they're very creative and very transformational by the sound of it. And we can see Delmar Divine is very transformational. Are these for-profit or non-profit? And I ask that because if it's for-profit, I would imagine yourself and your stakeholders are taking a very long-term view in terms of uh, your view for not only the building but the neighborhood. Uh, it, would you mind sharing? The the vehicle station would be a for profit more okay. than likely um, because uh, it can be. Uh, the uh, beauty incubator would could be could be parts of it could be um, because the it, w- what I see in it is a distribution center that everybody could share, a, a packaging, and all all these kinds of resources that people could share. But I think we might start off like a. Um, with a slightly different investment model than, than has been done. Like maybe have it uh, started by people who have donor advised funds that the money would come into this project. We would just keep reinvesting it. We wouldn't, we would never pay it back to them, but um, 50,000 could become like, oh wow, now it's 500,000 um, because you're reinvesting it in the initiative that you're doing. And that really is what it takes. And, and when you're talking about entrepreneurs, those entrepreneurs would be for profit someday. But even at Cortex, which is meant to be for for-profit businesses, I, only the companies like Microsoft and a few that are located there. It takes a long time in food science and healthcare and life sciences to make a profit. Retail is the, mo- the fastest place to go. Consumer products, you can make a lot of money if you know what you're doing. The, the challenge is for real estate um, that people don't think they need a mall anymore. But I was in the mall yesterday the Sunday before Valentine's Day, it was really busy. And I think we need new stores there, new ways for people, new reasons for people to come, maybe a new restaurant that people have been dying to go to that exists in a, in a mall. And the malls are, are having to adjust to that new thinking uh, because that's what, we don't need all the old stores. They are, we all know what they are. And they aren't changing fast enough to, to make us happy. So we need some new things. And I think they're out there, but the landlord has to make an investment like they made in me or take a risk and say, okay, if, if she doesn't make it, we won't sue her for not fulfilling her lease. You know, we'll, we'll be li- liberal on that. Or having pop-up stores or a pop-up opportunity. But you don't want it to look like it just popped up. You want it to look like it's a serious business. So I love that. I love having those ideas and seeing, uh, I meet young people all the time that I know could have a retail outlet, but they're afraid of that. Well, they're, one thing they're afraid of is that they have to work in it. They have to work seven days a week, to, you know, 10 hours a day or whatever it is now. That's another thing they don't want. They think of retail. I don't want to be in the retail business, but they want to sell it from their, you know, distribute it. The Instagram comes through in the night and they'll fill it in the morning and they don't have to work that many hours, but it's just as hard. And actually it's harder because you have to know that product exists to find it. But in a mall, you just walk by it and you see it and you say, oh, I want to go in there. It looks really inviting. So you have a sort of a built-in customer base that... And it, it's more expensive, but I'm not sure. It, I haven't done the analysis. It's one of those projects I have for a college student to do. Is it really any more with the cost of advertising and social media? That's less expensive than owning a store in a mall. 
and letting thousands of people walk by it every day? I'm not sure. I don't know. But I, I, it used to be that it sounded like it was, but I don't think it necessarily is the biggest. The delta is as big as it was, once was because of the cost of advertising and finding your customers online is, and so many, uh, what would I call them, copycat products that, you know, mm-hmm. it, it looks like a name. I'm, I'm a big shopper. I buy something that name is good. The packaging, it looks really good online. And I get it and it comes in a white bag from China. And then I don't even, I put a price on what I'm willing to pay, but I won't even use it because I'm not sure what's even in it. You know, like I don't even feel the trust. And yet a lot of those kinds of brands are, are infiltrating in America and they find one influencer to kind of just talk about it. And it's not really genuine. And I think that's another thing about, luckily, Build-A-Bear has, and we have, real people that talk about what what they get from being at Del Mar Divine or that teddy bear. They tell me their teddy bear stories all the time. And they're, some of them go viral. They put them out there themselves, and that helps us. But I would just say that the the you can't replace the real human story. And when you have it, you need to um, expand it you know, and tell everybody about it. Let people find it as easily as possible. So we're, we're about that hug, uh, whether it's a hug of a teddy bear or the hug of a neighborhood. And that part, the reward of that part of creating this project and becoming friends with so many people that live in this. I live just a few miles away, but I feel like this is where, I, when people say where, you know, when I say my neighborhood, I mean this. I don't mean my, where I live in Clayton. I mean this. And I, I really feel like this is my, these are my friends and these are people that I've known now for 10, 11 years that are um, prouder to live here than they were then because just a, a little thing that we've done or a big thing that we've done. They, they have been with my, my partner since day one. And I think the teddy bear part helped because when they found out I was Build-A-Bear, Mama Bear, they said, oh, she's a bear person. She can't be bad. <laughs> and, you know, we got, they, they welcomed me to the meetings, to the times, to discussions. And uh, uh, when they need a bear, I bring them a bear. Uh, uh, sometimes they don't tell me they need a bear, but I can see it in their eyes that something bad is happening and I can make it a little bit easier. Um, but uh, but it doesn't even, it's not bribery. It doesn't feel like that because it's what I would do. I give everyone bears. So I would say that um, I, live a, I live a life I could not have imagined. And it's so much better because of all the people that add to it um, and um, I just feel like, how did I, you know, I, 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 when you made me go backwards, I can see how I got here, but then you don't always see the connections immediately. But I'm, I'm a living, breathing example of it. And I think if more of us relaxed and just did what our heart told us to do instead of what we thought other people wanted us to do, we would be so much better off. And so would the world. And absolutely St. Louis would be because there's many people like you and I that didn't come from here that absolutely love it and can see all the potential. And we're not giving up. You said when you went to Florida, uh, you saw the same stores that you saw in St. Louis. And you kind of touched on uh, a bit of the retail, today's retail environment uh, now. Uh, If we were to look at, let's say, the past 30, 40 years in retail, we kind of went from Main Street to shopping malls and big box uh, stores. And I feel like we're moving back to kind of like a sort of main street to where you have a Del Mar Divine with some boutique shops in it or, or services. And then you have other mixed use developments that have their own main streets, if you will. Uh, do you think that's the future of retail with online shopping now that you have to have kind of smaller, either boutique or experiential um, experiences? Yeah. You can, you, we can't have both. This place like St. Louis that has so many neighborhoods with that those shop fronts that already exist that could be so cool. We can all imagine a, a great bakery, a place to have coffee, Food is also a big part, and we have 
um, six new restaurants coming to Del Mar Maker District uh, within the next six months. It's going to be really exciting. And we're already planning our taste of Del Mar, how we're going to do it, and how we're going to bring people that have never been here before. So food is a good way. But then you need things like an eyeglass store, and you need a, and it could be a Warby Parker, it could be a, a Lululemon for athletic store, but I can see all these lifestyle brands that could be here, because people want all that. They buy it. We already know where they shop. We can track them on their phones. We know they go to Plaza Frontenac and the Galleria and Target, and they're buying stuff. They're spending money. How do we get them to spend money closer to home? And what are those? what are those shops, and who are those uh, vendors that would be willing to take that early risk. And when you say risk, you're sharing it with them. You're saying, okay, well, we'll you'll have a reduced rent for the first, I'm making this up, the first 18 months you're here. And then, then it'll go up slightly and, you know, or whatever it is that you work out. Or we'll help you with the build out. We'll give you tenant allowance, which everybody does in a mall. Um, we couldn't have built Build-A-Bear if we didn't have our landlords helping us grow our, our store, store print faster. Um, all these things you have to put into the plan. And a lot of people who think about real estate in the city don't think about that. You know, you do as apartment builder, building apartments because you have to put in kitchens and bathrooms and, you know, amenities, washer, dryers, things like that. So you're thinking about what does the customer want? What are the, what is the basic needs that we can fill? Uh, and then some of the other stuff is just, you know, like lacy edges, and I don't think it really means a lot, but but it doesn't hurt, but it doesn't necessarily help, and it costs a lot of money. So you have to decide what is it that the customer really needs, and that's where we talk to the people all the time. What do kids want? Um, what do the kids want in the neighborhood? Like the, one of the things that's happening at Forest Park, they're building a basketball courts again. Mm -hmm. Kids wanted that, and they were. I don't know what they were afraid of. We can all uh, surmise that, but but the fact is, we have pickleball courts, and we have so, so right. This is in walking distance here, and then the park behind us. What can we do to improve this park and make it a multi generational park? So there's things for the seniors in the neighborhood to do, and the things for the children to do in the park too, and make it safe and smooth. It's not very safe. It's it's not unsafe, but you could hit a rock and fall down. Um, and somebody might not know you were in there for a while. Uh, we, we know that these are, we, people tell us this, and then we share it with the, the powers that be. And then what can we do? What can we do to help? Can we go in the park and do a lawnmower day and clean it up? And, and we brought Shakespeare to the park, and that helps a lot, brings people to the park who have never been to the park. These aren't, I didn't make up these ideas. I didn't invent teddy bears. Ray Kroc didn't invent hamburgers, and Howard Schultz didn't invent coffee. They just invented how to do it better. And think of all the things in this world that could be better if somebody just said, "I want to work on, I want to work on orange juice, or I want to work on plastic mugs, or whatever it happens to be." Um, and we need young people and and people who've lived a life and have had experience with that product to say, "Yeah, I've always wondered about that. I'm going to go fix it." And fixing it makes it a new product. So that's the, that's really the opportunity that I see. Is it's almost staring us in the face, and it does take money, but mostly it takes will, and you know trust and confidence in yourself that you could do it or that you could meet people that could help you with it. Um, it does take time, and not everybody you know wants to spend as much time as it takes. But I was planning Build a Bear for twenty five years. I just didn't know it. The way a good friend of mine puts uh, improving on existing products is building a better mousetrap, which which uh, I really resonate with that. I think that's what we kind of do with our company as well. Um, it, to end the show, we have what we call a hole-in-one, which is just your greatest piece of advice for anyone that they can implement in either their life or business uh -huh. today. Uh, what would you say your hole-in-one is for our listeners and viewers? Well, one, one of my things is about experience. If you want to own a restaurant, 
and you, you're a good cook and you'd never under, go work in a restaurant. You don't have to work there for the rest of your life. Go work there for a year. They're desperate for people, so it's easy to do. If you want to work in retail, go find the store that you really think is the best in the business and go work there and, and understand what it takes to, to manage something like that. So you, you really know what the part that you don't know, what you're getting into. You're learning what you're getting into so that you can make it even better. And that's a lot of things that people don't have experience in, but that's part of your research. People say, did you do a lot of, of research? 25 years of working in the retail business um, taught me a lot about the consumer, and I asked a lot of questions all the time. So that's one thing. And then the other is don't ever lose your kid think. Like, in my mind, when we were kids, when we said, Mommy, why can't we go there? Why not? Why, you know, and, you know, people just are always trying to get us to do it in their time frame. We can't lose our, our why, you know, like, why are we doing that? Or why not? And uh, bring that back and think of the thing, way you thought as a child and that you things that you might have, you know, you could come to mind and say, oh, yeah, I wrote, I, I remember that. I remember that. Write it down and see if anything out of that will bring you into a space where you can be more creative and more um, not, not, you know, like in a box, like you're out of that box. And kid think is good because it was when we, we didn't know anything and we, we wanted to learn everything. And so we have to get back to that and in, in seeing in our day-to-day -day life what's possible from that we take for granted. We just walk by it every day and we think, oh, that's all right. No, it's not. It's broken and you could fix it. And it could be a really a multi-million dollar business. It doesn't have to be a billion dollar business or a unicorn business of any kind. It could just be a business that hires people, pays them. build has done billions of dollars over our 27 years, but it does about what you said, about 500 around there somewhere, um, close every year. And it's a lot of business. And if you do it profitably, you can employ people and their lives can be better. Uh, and the children that get to hug a teddy bear of any age, three to 103, is our target market. It's a big target. It, it's joy every day. So I have, it, I have it on all sides. I have it from my past life, of which I still have some connection to, of course. And then I have it from what I'm doing today. And I'm thinking of a hug as a hug. That keeps me grounded in this is all about doing good for people. And people need that, that hug. And St. Louis needs a hug. It deserves a hug. It's a great place to live, to work, and to play. And we have a lot of assets that we could make even better. I love it. Great way to end the show. St. Louis needs a hug, and everyone needs a hug. Maxine, thank you so much for your time. You're Greatly welcome. appreciate it. My pleasure. If you're a high-quality company interested in reaching the high-performing audience of Country Club Conversations, let's see how we can work together. To explore sponsorship opportunities, email advertising at storyboardliving.com. That's advertising at storyboardliving.com.